Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, December 15th, we're studying Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 11. The prophet proclaims the good news that is found in Jesus, the one who has been anointed with the Spirit for the joyful task of bringing salvation to sinners. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Gavin Mize. Pastor Mize serves at Augustana Evangelical Lutheran Church in Hickory, North Carolina. Pastor Mize, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you. I always enjoy being on this show. Pastor Mize, we are in Isaiah chapter 61 today. The text that we're going to look at is the appointed reading for the third Sunday in Advent in series B of the three-year lectionary, one of the many texts from Isaiah that we've looked at in this series, but we've kind of bounced around the book a little bit. And so it's helpful to get some bearings straight as we enter into this text. What do we need to know about Isaiah 61, the context of it, as we prepare to study it today? The greatest uh, context that, that we have is leading into the 61st chapter is uh, pure joy. Uh, chapter 61 is very much about uh, rescuing the sinner and the sinner's uh, uh, proclamation of, of joy for what the Lord has done to him. Um, and that stands in contrast to 60. And I'll just read a little bit here um, in, in 66, uh, verse 16. You, sh- you shall suck the milk of nations, you shall nurse at the breasts of kings, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. And we all know those, uh, those names to be specifically about Jesus, the Lord, Savior, and of course, the second article of the creed, the Redeemer and the Mighty One of Jacob. And then finally at the end, um, the least one shall become a clan and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord and it's time I will hasten it. Very much uh, Sermon on the Mount type language. And that just leads us right into uh, more proclamation of the good news of Christ. This is a, another one of those texts in Isaiah, which really earns him the title, the fifth evangelist. We've talked a little bit about that previously in the book of Isaiah. This is one of those texts where Isaiah very clearly sees Jesus and his work, even though he lives 700 years before Christ is ever born. He sees it very clearly, even to the point, as we'll discuss, that this actually forms the basis for 
Jesus' first sermon that he preaches in his hometown of Nazareth. He has a sermon text, and it's Isaiah 61, and I know we'll talk about that. So again, we've got another very clear proclamation of Christ from Isaiah here in chapter 61. Before we go into the text, just real briefly, you mentioned joy, and this text does get appointed for the third Sunday in Advent, which is the the pink or the rose Sunday as you're you're lighting the Advent wreath, which is traditionally a, a Sunday of joy. Give us just a, a bit of context on the joy that we have on the third Sunday in Advent. Well, you know, as, as Lutherans, we can't agree on anything. So pink and rose, you know, uh, you know, pick your side and get, and get to the battle. Um, I, I like rose just because it's Italian for pink. And I just think it sounds better. <laughs> do you have um, rose vestments? We do. Yes. All right. Um, maybe we can let the folks know where to find those for at, at a really good price. Uh, the the rejoicing that comes in the third Sunday of uh, Advent, and I'm going to say something here that's that's probably controversial, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, rejoicing that comes in the morning. Uh, Advent is a penitent season, and a lot of people don't think that, and I would recommend you not trying to push that onto your congregation because they're not going to believe that it's a penitent season. Um, especially if you, if you have blue vestments, which, which we do, we do. Um, but it's even harder when you, when it, when it's blue and instead of violet and gives it the, the penitent season feel, but just like in Latin, uh, Latin in Lent, uh, there's that one Sunday of, of joy in Advent. There's the one Sunday of rejoicing where pen, the, the penitence is put aside. And for one Sunday, uh, we rejoice in the Lord. And here's the part that's going to be controversial. We at, here at Augustana, pick, we sing Christmas hymns on that day. And the reason that we do that uh, is because it is it is a joyful time, and uh, also the people always ask for Christmas hymns during Advent, and that's the one Sunday where we say, "Okay, that's, let let's go forward with it." But again, controversial. Uh, that's why Lutherans can't have nice things. You're such a rebel, Pastor Mize. <laughs> Well, I, and just just briefly on this idea of of joy in the midst of penitence, I had this experience myself very recently making a nursing home visit, which I, I'm not sure how things are there in North Carolina and whether you're able to do that or not. I, I'm able to do that between a, a plexiglass window while masked at a distance. I'm still able to see the dearly loved saints there at the nursing home who need the Lord's gifts. And just recently, during the season of Advent, we too sang Christmas hymns while at that visit. And, and just that, I think that joy that was there in the midst of this time of penitence for Christians during this pandemic, that joy that was there due to the singing of, you know, Gloria in excelsis as the angels sang on Christmas, that's a, a similar idea to what we get here on this Rose Sunday, the third Sunday in Advent, the joy that is there in the midst of the penitence. And, well, and go ahead. I was just going to say, it's, it's like a funeral where you have a body in a casket. 
the, the, the casket preaches the law. Um, you, you, you don't have to do a whole lot of work to preach the law because you see the wages of sin is, is death. And I, I feel the same way about, vis, about visiting people who are in the nursing home. Um, they, they're very aware of their mortality and very aware of, um, uh, of you know, I, I want to say poor, poor conditions, not poor conditions in the sense of the facility, but more uh, poor conditions in the sense of uh, less freedom and things like that. I think you need to go into, I, th- I think you're right, you need to go into those situations singing Christmas hymns and, and giving them the joy uh, of Christ that they don't re- they really don't get every day. That's right. That's right. And and the joy comes through here in Isaiah chapter 61. So let's read the text. The prophet Isaiah writes, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. That is the text for today, Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 11. Pastor Mize, the first several verses, as we mentioned previously, are used by Jesus for his very first sermon. It's recorded for us in Luke chapter 4. He preaches at a synagogue in Nazareth, and he tells them, this text is about me. So take us into these words that Jesus used quotes directly and applies to himself at the beginning of 61 uh we find there in luke uh 4 18 almost verbatim for the first bit here um i'll read i'm gonna read these side by side uh 61 the spirit of the lord god is upon me because the lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor he has set me up 
to bind the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive, and open and the opening of prison to those who are bound. And here is Luke four eighteen. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has uh, anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering the sight to, to the blind, and set at liberty them that are bruised. And so there's so much, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost verbatim. Um, in fact, I would even argue that depending on how you translate it, uh, it could be even more uh, closely bound. But in particular, it talks about Jesus in the anointing, uh, and in the anointing, it's very much authority that is given over to Jesus. Uh, and because we know that there are many kings, many prophets that were anointed by God with, with, uh, with oil, um, with hot coals, uh, with, uh, with many things. But the anointing of Christ is much like the baptism of Christ. It's his anointing that makes all other anointings anointment. <laughs> Whereas, and just like in his baptism, he, uh, he, he's baptized in the water, not because he's sinful, but so that all waters will be sanctified and a lavish washing away of sin. And so his baptism is what makes all baptisms baptisms. And like I said, anointing, Jesus' anointing uh, makes all the other anointings an anointment. And, uh, and also what he does with that anointment is the same thing he does with his authority that's given uh, to given by the Father to Jesus. Um, bring good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, uh, open the prison to those who are who are in capture, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, day of vengeance, comfort all, who, uh, and grant all those in Zion. Uh, beautiful headdress instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, and so forth. I mean, it's all summed, summed up with this verse from Jesus. All authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go in, uh, into all ethne, uh, teaching and baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That one, along with I came to serve not to be served. Uh, so we see the, the servant, um, well, anointment uh, that, that's going out to the people, to the poor, to the brokenhearted. And all of these things are epiphanies. I think that's huge. Uh, the epiphany season is really uh, the entire church, the entire church year. Because uh, all these things are are certainly epiphanies. The poor hearing the good news, are, they have an epiphany because they finally hear the good news. Uh, the brokenhearted, they're uh, they are uh, they, they are finally comforted for towards Christ. Um, the captives who have freedom, uh, an epiphany there too. The captives who, who do not know free, freedom has been granted liberty from Christ. And then we can just keep on going right down uh, the first half of Isaiah 61. It's interesting you mentioned epiphany because I, 
and I know you use the one-year lectionary there, Pastor Mize. In, in the three-year lectionary, you hear at least one time this Luke 4 text that we're referencing. And so when I hear Isaiah 61, my mind does go to Epiphany, the time of the church year when we think of how Christ reveals himself to us. And certainly in all of these things, he is revealing himself, as you said, as the one anointed, the Christ, the Messiah, above all others. There, there were all these others in the Old Testament who were anointed, but all those anointings, as you said, were, were fulfilled and really brought to reality in the anointing that belongs to Jesus, the one who has the spirit on him. And we've seen that in Isaiah 11. We looked at that text previously in this series and how the spirit of the Lord rests on Jesus so that he accomplishes all these things. Just briefly, one one thing that I think stands out from this text is that we really can't understand this apart from Jesus. There have been other texts for example, we recently looked at 2 Samuel chapter 7, where the Lord promises David a son who will sit on his throne. And you get Solomon, who comes along right after David, who sits on David's throne. And maybe you're thinking, well, okay, here's, here's a sort of fulfillment of that promise. Now, we know that Christ is ultimately the fulfillment of that promise. But in Isaiah 61, I don't think there's anybody else who fits these words, not even in part, other than Jesus. This this is Isaiah preaching Jesus, period. I absolutely agree. And uh, one of the things I was going to get to with, uh, with the epiphany that I did not get to is, okay, we have the season of epiphany. And, you know, we're trucking along towards that right now. Um, now, there's the season of epiphany, but there are epiphanies throughout all of the church year. Uh, and and here's here's my, the point that I was going to make. Every epiphany is someone's recollection or realization that Christ is the Son of God. So the epiphany is that Jesus is the Messiah. You can't have an epiphany without uh, seeing Christ as the Messiah. Uh, and even in John 6, all of them have, who had epiphanies uh, were soon uh, left, soon left Christ uh, because they could not stand what he was saying. And what, what was he saying? One of the greatest epiphany of, of all, eat my flesh or eat the flesh of the Son of Man and you will have life in you. And, they, and that, that's when the large majority of them who had an epiphany were like, uh-uh, I'm out of here. And then uh, his, his apostles stuck around but were kind of like, ah, I don't know about this. And then Christ, of course, gives them the epiphany in the great epiphany in the, the upper room in the Lord's Supper, um, and that, which eventually you will find the final epiphany, which is in the resurrection. Mm-hmm. And in between the Lord's Supper and the resurrection, there is only the cross um, where his sorrows are shown rather than his glory. So epif- epiphanies always point towards the Messiah and all of I, well, all of what Isaiah is saying is very uh, is is all epiphany. I mean, the 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 title of the chapter here in the Concordia Study Bible is the the year of the Lord's favor. So, I mean, it's going right towards epiphany. 
Well, with that with that title that is given by the by the editors, the year of the Lord's favor, it certainly comes from the text itself. It's found in verse two to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which we need to understand in the context of what verse one has said. And it's a very similar image that you get in these various things that Jesus will come to do, bringing good news to the poor, binding up the brokenhearted, proclaiming liberty to the captives, opening the prison of those who are bound. The, The thought I think that runs through all of them are those who are in some way oppressed, those who are in some way toward the bottom of society, those who are looked down upon, those who are despised, they will all be lifted up, they will receive some kind of release or freedom in the work of the Christ, who is Jesus. And and that culminates in this thought of proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. So we should understand that from an Old Testament perspective. What What is this year of the Lord's favor that Isaiah is talking about here? Um. I lost what I was going to say. The the year of the Lord's favor is, of course, um, his heading towards, uh, well, everything that we just talked about, the crucifixion, um, well, Lord's Supper. Well, let me put it this way. Once he turned his face towards Jerusalem, that is the year of the Lord's favor because it's, it's the completion when Christ says it is finished, that day of creation is is done. And the resurrection is the very next thing. And so the reason I say cre- uh, creation is because we are uh, recreated in Christ. One other thing, what, one thing that I really despise is when people put themselves in Scripture, you know, say, you know, I can, Gavin can do all things through Christ uh, who strengthens him so i can open pickle jars and things like that uh, or play sports good but i think that i think that in this text i we don't really put our name in it but particularly verse two we can see what's going to happen to us and the what is the role of christ and when it says to, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, you think, oh, that, that's that's wonderful. And then the very next text is uh, the day of vengeance of our God. And so you can't have one without the other. You can't have the crushing law uh, without the beautiful gospel. And also those who are outside of the faith, the, the true vengeance comes upon them. Uh and then, of course, at the cross, when Christ called out "Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani," and all of the ven- all of that vengeance was uh, cast upon the wicked, and Christ, of course, atoned for all of our sins. But I think that that's really neat. Vengeance, and then again, right underneath that, those who mourn. Uh, I think that's also a very beautiful thing. Um, and of course, I really love this language too. Maybe we can get into it a little bit. Headdress instead of ashes. Repentance instead of instead of uh, death. We have a diadem placed on our heads, and that's absolutely gorgeous. I love that. 
to go to um, i do want to pick up that imagery of of clothing that's there because it, it shows up in the very first part of the text here and it also shows up again towards the end this idea of being clothed in in various garments is a, a really important image here in isaiah 61 and really throughout the scriptures before we leave the the year of the lord's favor the day of vengeance of our god the comforting of of those who mourn in the old testament you have this year of jubilee that happens every 50 years where debts are com- are forgiven all of that is sort of a culmination of the the seven year cycle where you you would let the land rest every seven years this idea of of rest and release which are are related words to forgiveness as we see particularly in the new testament the way jesus preaches you know that that the sins are forgiven the debt is canceled all of all of this picture this is what jesus has come to proclaim and as you said all of it finds its fulfillment in what he does on Calvary and what he does by his death, where the vengeance of our God is, is ultimately carried out on Christ in our stead as he bears our sins, which is just a fantastic thing. It's, you know, Jesus doesn't actually get to, we, we were reading from Luke four earlier. Jesus doesn't actually quote this matter of the day of vengeance when he preaches there in, in Luke four. And, and I've always, that, that's always struck me, but I, I think it, it finds it's, reason in the fact that Jesus knows that the vengeance of God is going to come upon him when he goes to die on the cross. And uh, that, that's a good point. And one one thing that really pulls my attention here is um, where in Luke do you find uh, do you find that vengeance? And as you said, it's not it's not in the tech the, the 418 um, that that we have, I think it goes all the way to the daughters of Zion uh, when he's entering into Jerusalem, and he says, "Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves. For if they do this, when the uh, tender is green, uh, what will happen when the tender is is dry?" I think that's that's where the vengeance is because he's literally saying that to the, to the women. Blessed are are those who uh, whose breast never. Uh, never nursed, etc. Very much vengeance on on the earth as he's going to the to the cross. That's where I believe uh, that that vengeance is, because it, he says it so clearly. Um, and all, it, again, they should build up the ancient ruins. They sh- they shall rise up the former devastations, and then uh, again five. You were talking about clothing. Five strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners will be plowmen and vine dressers. There's very much a an understanding of clothing in vocation as as well. The difference between uh, sheep herd sheep herders and vine dressers are very different. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to find that the exact. Uh, Verse, I had it. Oh, here it is. At 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me in the garments of salvation and covered me with a robe of righteousness. The bridegroom decks himself like a priest in, the, in a beautiful headdress again, and the bride adorns herself uh, with her jewels. So that's what happens to sinners in their forgiveness. 
And that's what, I mean, that that's uh, literally when, when a baby is baptized, we typically, ho- hopefully, clothe them in white after they're baptized, or we have them in white as they come to be baptized. But the point is, is that it's white, and because the infants are clothed in the forgiveness, the justification, the sanctification of Christ. So let's uh, the, let's let's pick that clothing imagery up on the other side of the break. We need to take that break, Pastor Mice. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, December 15th. We're studying Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 11. We've got Pastor Gavin Mize with us. He serves at Augustana Evangelical Lutheran Church in Hickory, North Carolina. Pastor Mize, prior to the break, we we were talking about clothing. The imagery is all over the place here in Isaiah 61 and throughout the scriptures in terms of what clothing we wear in Christ. And I had to go to break, so we just interrupted. But but pick pick up right where you left off in terms of clothing. And you were talking about how it applies to us in baptism, the way that we, we dress our children when we bring them to the font. Uh, keep talking to us about this clothing that the Lord gives to us. Well, I, I think that this is something that we really need to teach our people because there's something that happens in that in baptism, and what happens in in that baptism is well. Let me put it this way: it's not meant to be a cute thing. It's not meant to be a uh, while while babies are cute as they're being led to the font. They're little heathens, and then once they're baptized, they are uh, justified and sanctified in. Christ, that we have that baptismal theology, and once that happens, once the baptism happens, um, the child is covered in white, or like I said, usually or sometimes the baby can be brought in white with the anticipation of the baptism. Uh, but clothing on on infants is very much a liturgical thing. It's a it's a divine liturgical thing where. Uh, the baby is covered in in white uh, in that motion, in that uh, understanding of salvation that the liturgy naturally brings us to. And then on the other hand, this headdress, um, and, and I, I love that the word, the bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. Um, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels, this is why pastors need to properly vest. I mean, if if the infant uh, is speaking liturgically in uh, in baptism, so likewise should the should pastors properly vest um, 
so that people can will notice that uh, the bridegroom is decks himself like a priest uh, uh, with a beautiful headdress, and the bridegroom for the people is the pastor, um, the priest, and he who wears the headdress. And so when we speak to our people, particularly the forgiveness of sins in, in absolution or in divine service, it's very much a liturgical thing. It's very much a liturgical movement. Uh, and in that liturgical movement, you have the forgiveness of sins. And people need to know who that person is. And uh, a Ralph Lauren Polo is just not going to cut it. I mean, it, if you can't tell... If you can't tell one person from from the other and you don't know who the pastor is and you're visiting, then we, we got a problem. One of the things that strikes me about this text, and you mentioned it in as it regards to holy baptism and the way that we bring our children, many times the child is already dressed in white, and that's fine. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But there is within the baptismal liturgy at least in Lutheran service book, the option after the baptism has taken place for the pastor to place a white garment on the child or the adult, the one newly baptized, and say these words. I'm reading from the service of holy baptism in the Lutheran service book. Receive this white garment to show that you have been clothed with the robe of Christ's righteousness that covers all your sin. So shall you stand without fear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the inheritance prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And the, the reason I bring that up, that, it's there in the rite of holy baptism after the baptism has taken place is because of the way Isaiah speaks here, you get this replacement of garments. It's a very striking imagery. For example, in verse three, the beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. One set of clothing is replaced by another set of clothing. It's maybe maybe one way to think about it would be it would be the difference between the clothing that you would wear to a funeral or the clothing you would wear to a wedding. And and all of a sudden, because of what the Lord has done through his anointed one, Jesus Christ, our our clothes have been completely changed. Our sin has been covered with his own righteousness and our our funeral dirge that we would sing because of our own sin has been replaced with the songs of the resurrection in Christ. It's just a fantastic transformation that we see in this text and that we can mirror in that one way in the rite of holy baptism. Absolutely. And uh, to, to well, actually compare and contrast your point there, uh, uh, Luther has the exorcism at the, at the front of, uh, of the baptismal rite where he says, um, flee thou unclean spirit and make way for the Holy Spirit. And then he takes spittle and he seals every um, orifice on the face of the child. And th- that, sealing, that sealing is a very great uh, illustration of being clothed, but being clothed uh, in the opposite sense of how Adam was clothed. He takes the infant back to the garden pre-fall uh, where the child is, is, is nude, although typically not, but you, you get, you get my point uh, it is, is taken back to the garden of Eden 
taken back to where naked, where there was no shame in nakedness, and then being clothed after the baptism in, uh, in that the, I'll, I'll say the uh, the uh, rehearsal wear, the the wedding rehearsal wear, uh, and it's, that's very different than as you said the funeral dirge. And one interesting thing that I find when people come into my office and they uh, for a uh, to get a service for the funeral, uh, one of the things I notice more than anything is does this mean I have to buy a suit? And I th- I think that's that's pretty uh, uh pretty good and telling because they know that something is happening, uh, and what's happening is not going to be pleasant for them. But it is certainly pleasant for the one in whom is being buried, because he has a completely different set uh, of of garments. He has his final clothing, uh, but he's also dressed and decked out for the resurrection of Christ. And man, he's going to be he's going to be uh, wearing his finest attire when Christ comes and uh, and leads him to the. Uh, him or her to the final uh, great wedding feast where that you we will be clothed in our righteousness given by the bridegroom of all eternity all, all of this really does point us toward the resurrection and the clothing in which we will we will be dressed on that glorious day saint john sees it in the book of revelation chapter 7 the ones clothed in white robes they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb and again that that same baptismal imagery that we were talking about, I think really does find its fulfillment in the Christian funeral when the casket is covered with that white funeral pall. And, and we speak the words from Romans six, that this person has been clothed with Christ and, and he has died with Christ, has been buried with Christ. And so will be raised with Christ. And the, the funeral pall is another aspect of that clothing imagery that confesses the same thing at the Christian funeral. So there's there's plenty to talk about in terms of the clothing, Pastor Mize, and we, we can keep talking about that, but there are other images in this text that I, I do think we should pick up as well. Verse four, I think you, you mentioned earlier, it talks about rebuilding, building up ancient ruins, raising up former devastations, repairing ruined cities. And, and then it says the devastations of many generations. That, that last phrase there, the devastations of many generations, it doesn't take long to look at the world today and, oh man, you can see how things have just piled up from one generation to the next, the devastations we have wrought upon this world. And yet in the Lord Jesus Christ, he promises an even better rebuilding recreation than we could ever picture. And here it is in Isaiah 61. Well, and also this is just a, 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 a rabbit hole to go down for a second. Uh, Christ also talks about the destruction of the temple uh, being himself mm-hmm. and that he would raise the temple up again in three days. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's that needs to be, said uh, uh, not necessarily gone down too far in the rabbit hole but that needs to be said um and also that one one stone will not be upon another um etc et uh here we have really a really a reversal 
So on the one hand, you have former devastations, you have ruined cities, you have once again devastations, and I missed. Uh, and, and and all that's happening is a positive, positive thing. Ancient ruins, we shall build them up. Uh, former devastations, they shall raise them up. Ruined cities shall be repaired. Many generations, um, or the devastations of many generations will be, once again, repaired. And in that, uh, I mean, you're right, it's, it's, it's absolutely gorgeous in that Christ is the one who does this. He's the one who turns it uh, on its head. And one of the great things about the Messiah is the Messiah to the Jews um, was not the Messiah that they were looking for. Christ constantly disappointed them. And that, and that is to say that that's not Christ's fault. It's their fault. But when he would, uh, one of my favorite things that Christ did is spitting on the ground and making mud and putting it on his, on the, the blind man's eye. If that's it, if that's not incarnational, I don't know what is. But again, rebuilding that man, and he would constantly do things as the Messiah um, that seemed meticulous, it seemed uh, disappointing, it seemed like um, um, a exercise in futility, but really, again, all that was was epiphany and building up of, of Christ. Uh, real, yeah, I, I love the connection that you made there to the words of Jesus when he talks about in John chapter two, you destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days, that connection to the resurrection and all of his miracles, as you said, these moments where he creates again in the way things in the way that it should be. He makes the blind to see and the lame to walk and the deaf to hear. He raises up the dead. All of these things point toward that resurrection from the dead. And and then that that Jesus didn't meet their expectations. You know, I have to chuckle a little bit because when Jesus preaches from this text, after he preaches and says, this is me, they want to kill him. <laughs> they, they take him outside the city and they're ready to throw him off the cliff. And he just, you know, walks through the crowd unharmed because it's, it is not his hour yet. But, but over and over again, he does not meet what they had in mind. Their expectations had not been shaped according to what Isaiah had, had preached. They weren't looking for Jesus as he came. And yet he is the one who we must receive on his terms as he comes, because as he comes, he is the only one who can do these things. The only one who can give the release in the year of the Lord's favor to forgive the sins. The only one who can clothe us in the forgiveness and the righteousness that belongs to him. The only one who can raise us from the grave on the last day. And so we must receive him as he comes. I'm going to, I'm going to fast forward us a little bit through the text, Pastor Mize to verse eight. We, we did briefly touch on verses five through seven and and now verse eight, there's a bit of a, a a shift, I think. I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. All of a sudden, the Lord's talking about now what he loves, this justice, and he hates robbery and wrong. What's going on in, in verse eight? In verse eight, we find, uh, well, let's, let, we'll just bring up Luther's great saying, or at least, I don't know if it's a great saying, but we took it and ran with it. Uh, eight and nine is the Eustace toward all of the peccator. Um, 
we find what, well, let, I'll put it this way. When, when we look at, we're going to go back to the garden again. When we look at the will of God between Adam and Eve, um, the, the will is the image. Um, it's not that we look like him, have 10, ten fingers and 10 toes, just like God does, but rather it's the will of God and our will was God's will, or God's will was our will, and our will was God's will. And in that great, perfect thing. And then came the original sin, and God's will remained God's will, but our will became our own will. And whenever we find this in verse 8, we're, sing we're singing in, uh, in harmony with God himself. For I the Lord love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants, etc., etc. Um, and, but we're able to sing along with God and where we have been forgiven, we love justice. Where we have been forgiven, we hate robbery and we hate wrong. Where we have been, been forgiven, we faithfully uh, receive recompense, etc., etc. And uh, in particular, um, in, in particular, uh, I want to say that in my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Uh, we have that covenant in so far as Christ was the, the was the absolute fulfillment of the law and given unto us his holy supper to eat and drink, um, his holy washing away of, of sins, and his holy absolution spoken through the pastor of, of the con congregation. And in that way, we sing and we sing in harmony with Christ, and that and in as we sing in that uh, sing in that song with Christ, uh, Christ keeps his covenant when pointing to those beautiful things. Is what Christ does for us every single time, and when we sing in harmony with God, it's the Holy Spirit who is singing for us, and in that. We cannot do anything but uh, remain forgiven uh, by Christ himself. That matter of singing in harmony with our Lord, I think is how Isaiah really closes this text out in verses 10 and 11. We've talked about the clothing imagery that's there. But verse 10 starts like this. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. We, we saw in verse 3 how... Jesus is the one who has clothed us with himself, clothed us in these wedding garments instead of funeral clothes. And now in verse 10, we break out into song with him. We sing in harmony with him. We join in the joy that he has given. And as we were saying at the very beginning in the whole Advent context, the third Sunday in Advent, this is a Sunday of joy. And to be clothed in this way, we sing it too. We can't help but join in that song of all creation and sing the praises of joy to our God. So, Pastor Mice, help us help us out with some of that that joy, this proclamation of joy from those who've received the good things. Take us into that those last verses a little further. Well, in, in uh, the very first thing I think of uh, is 
John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth. Uh, Rejoicing is, and I'm going to get in trouble with uh, with our Lutheran visitors or listeners, uh, but that joy, that rejoicing inside of us is the very thing that we feel and we love and we uh, desire. Uh, in in that rejoicing, we have not only hope, but hope that's connected to a promise and a promise that's connected to a hope. And uh, in that rejoicing, I don't. I, I, one has to sing. One has to. Uh, one one has to make it make a joyful noise unto the Lord. And when we do that, that's the and. <laughs> An outward expression of an inward feeling, um, to, to, to borrow from the Baptists. But that's what exaltation is. It's the, uh, it's the vocalization, it's the harmony uh, of the rejoicing that our hearts f- uh, feel because they have been uh, filled by the Holy Spirit. And so that's why Lutherans are so good at singing is because uh, we, we have such joy that uh, other denominations may not have, but we have to we have to bring out uh, that exaltation, uh, lest our rejoicing die. Mm. The, the moment in the divine service that I'm reminded of, and I think I I mentioned this not that long ago in another another Old Testament text that deals with such joy, is in the proper preface before the singing of the Sanctus, where the pastor ends the proper preface with the word saying, and yet the congregation sings. We simply burst forth into song. And the the example of John in Elizabeth's womb, I think is a fantastic one. I, I recently talked about this in a an Advent midweek service. And I, I, I compared, I don't know if this, this, I hope this isn't impious. I compared it to, to a pinball machine where the joy bounces around from, from one to another. And, and it all starts because of the one who is in Mary's womb. Jesus is there. And because of the joy that is there in Jesus, John literally does bounce in Elizabeth's womb. And Elizabeth then exclaims in joy. And Mary exclaims in joy yet again in the Magnificat. It, it's amazing the way that joy does go from one Christian to the next all because of Jesus' presence among us. And, and, and you're right. We, we just can't help but sing it. We, we have to. And, and if that means we sing Christmas hymns in Advent occasionally, then so be it, because the joy is, is just that great. Absolutely. And uh, what I'll, I'm going to go back to what I was saying about John the Baptist. Um, John the Baptist's recognition of Jesus would be the rejoicing the leaping in the womb would be the exaltation. Uh, and that's, that's exactly how we, the forgiven saints of God, um, you know, we have that joy and that rejoicing, but our exaltation is toward God. Um, and it is blessed by God, sanctified by God. Um, and along with that, where we are clothed in robes of white. Um, and of course, that rejoicing, we have to come to the other end uh, of the of the bookend, and that is 
that the third Sunday that we're going to is that is the rejoicing that we enter in and the exaltation, like you said, angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. That means that they're worshiping with us. Uh, they're with us. And therefore, the exaltation is actually heavenly and also earthly. And I, to me, that's one of the biggest comforts uh, in, in all of uh, Christendom is that we get to uh, is that we get to sing and worship with angels, archangels, and all the company of heaven. And only a merciful God would allow us to worship with them. And uh, and Christ sees this, and He's pleased. With just about two minutes on the morning, Pastor Mize, help us summarize Isaiah sixty-one. Point us again to the joy that is ours in Christ, the one who has the Spirit of God to save us. Christ is anointed. He is the one who brings the good news to the poor. He's the one who binds up the one on the side of the road. He's the one who heals the brokenhearted in particular. And I love that one because when things are terrible, when our hearts are broken, when we bury children, uh, we are literally uh, heartbroken when, when uh, someone has depression when someone uh, is is captive by their own fears, Christ is there to heal our hearts, heal our minds, heal our uh, heal us in the forgiveness of sins, and He does that according to His anointing from the Father that He would do all of these things. Um, and grant us all of these things. And at the very end, in his death and in his resurrection, we are given the great diadem and our ashes are replaced. Thanks be to God. Pastor Gavin Mize is the pastor at Augustana Evangelical Lutheran Church in Hickory, North Carolina, helping us this morning with Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 11. Pastor Mize, thanks for being our guest today. Absolutely. Always enjoy it. Jesus has been anointed with the Spirit to be the Savior, to be the Christ, the Messiah, who sets us free, who releases us from our sins by his death on the cross where the vengeance of God was poured out upon him. And yet on the third day, he was raised to life eternal so that he will raise you as well on the last day. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.